Welcome to the happy hour. My name is Jonah Paquette. I'm one of your co-hosts for this awesome show. And with me as always is <laughs> Supriya Gill, the other co-host. And I'm just loving that energy, Jonah. Is it Friday or something? It, it may be Friday. We do like to record these talks, these uh, these episodes on Fridays, you know, clear our head, get through the stress of the week and just be able to relax and have some fun with talking to some interesting people, fascinating people that we can all learn from and hopefully sharing some ideas with you, our listeners, about how to live a happier, healthier life. So who are we getting into today? Today, I'm really excited because we are going to be, you'll be hearing about us talking with Yael Shanbrun, who is a clinical psychologist and just a kick-ass person, really. So I'll talk a little bit about who she is, and then we can talk about what's to come. She is a kick-ass person, yeah, as, as you'll all hear, but... <laughs> yeah, you don't have to take our word for it. So she's a clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, co-host of the Psychologist Off the Clock podcast, which if you have not checked out, you absolutely should. It is an awesome podcast. Almost as awesome as... No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's probably more <laughs> awesome than ours, if we're being, if we're being honest, but, but we're getting there. It's a, it's a favorite cousin, as a wise person once said. <laughs> She's also the author of Work Parent Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. You'll be hearing a lot about that book today and, and how amazing it is and how much I love it. She's also a parent of three. In her research, private practice, writing, and podcasting, Yael uses science and Eastern philosophy to explore practices proven to foster health, relationships between partners, parents, and children, and between our most important life roles. Yael's writing on work, parenting, and relationships has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Greater Good Science Center, Behavioral Scientist, Tricycle, among others. So, you can see why we're so excited to be talking with her today. In other words, she's quite a slacker, as you can imagine. <laughs> Has a lot of free time on her hands. I know. I don't know. I don't know how she does it with all those, all, all that that she's juggling. Speaking of, uh, she has a great new newsletter that she just started on relationships. So if you're interested in that, relationships of all sort, not just romantic relationships, but collegial relationships and you know familial and friends and all that if you go to her website which we'll have in the show notes but yaelshunbrun.com and sign up for her newsletter right there we highly recommend it really fascinating discussion in store though right supreme I mean, we covered a lot of ground with her some really personal stuff and i think some really eye-opening information um that was fascinating for me to learn yeah absolutely and and i think I felt very similar to you. I a lot of what she talks about in terms of roles and and role enrichment are perspectives that I hadn't considered truly prior to to reading her book and it really helped to shift the shift the framework on how I conceptualize how I parent and how I work and and how those two can really feed off of each other in an enriching way rather than something that feels depleting or contributing to burnout. Yeah, I thought that was such an eye-opening piece because I think we do have this tendency, right, to, you know, whether it's in, in, in if you're a parent or if you feel like, oh, my, my the, the me at work is in conflict with the me that, you know, wants to invest in my relationship or have a life or kind of all these different parts, so to speak, of ourselves that we often, I think, are conditioned to feel like these are, you know, pulling us in different directions or in, and, and are inherently at battle with each other. And I think she just does an amazing job in a few ways to explore how these can be quite synergistic, actually, and actually sort of elevate us in these different domains of our lives. So 
Uh, she covers quite a bit of ground there. We talk about the importance just of social connection and belonging and relationships in our discussion, and obviously a lot of fascinating stuff coming out there, including a recent report by our uh, Surgeon General that we discussed in the episode right. as well. That's right. And and what did you think about how she brings in values with, with the different dynamics you described? Because it's you're right, it's not just about parenting. She's talking about role conflict in all aspects of the way, in, including with our own self and, mm-hmm. and how we manage these different parts of our lives. So what did you think about that piece? I valued it quite a bit. No, that's just a bad. No pun bad, intended. That was, bad. that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's such an important layer that she brought in, and that you know, I think we had a discussion around is just sort of how do we know where to point the boat or the ship, so to speak? How do we know what direction to be moving in? Um, because sometimes in life, right, these um, you know things that are very dear to us can can feel like they pull us in different directions, and how to know what to prioritize, how to live, how to do things that are in line with the you know what matters most to us is, I thought, a really important part of the discussion that we got into there. So stay tuned right after our little transition, our break coming right up for our fascinating discussion with Dr. Yael Shanbrun. And of course, check out her website that'll be in the show notes as well and sign up for her newsletter. And of course, the Psychologist Off the Clock podcast, which we will plug one more. A favorite cousin. I like that expression, Sukriya. (laughs) I didn't come up with it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Stay tuned. Welcome, everyone, to the happy hour. I am your co-host, Jonah Paquette, and with me, as always, Dr. Supriya Gill, the wonderful, incomparable Dr. Supriya Gill. And we are thrilled to be joined today by a very special guest, someone who we've both been very excited, I would say, to have. Supriya, maybe especially, would you say? I am so excited. I'm going to try to keep it in control today. (laughs) At at least for the first few minutes, try to. Uh, But we are joined today by uh, the amazing Yael Shanbrun. Uh, who is going to introduce herself to us just briefly right now. Well, I just first want to start by saying thank you, and I hope that I don't disappoint your excitement. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm really honored to be on here talking with you guys with the start of this wonderful podcast. And um, yeah, a little bit about me is I'm a clinical psychologist. I specialize in relationships. My book is about working parenthood, but looking at the relationship between roles, which I think we rarely do, but it is something that as a relationship specialist, I was particularly interested in when I became a working parent. Um, But more generally, I'm interested in relationships between people and roles. So I look at relationships between couples, between parents and kids, and again, between demanding roles. So that's kind of my professional role. And yeah, and then I have a lot of personal relationships. I have three kids and a busy life. <laughs> and that was a very modest introduction, uh, considering you how much you do. I mean, Supriya and I were just looking over your accomplishments and list of uh, 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 peer-reviewed articles and publications. Uh, publications, yes. and, and we thought to ourselves, are we... Uh, is the bar too high interviewing someone like, like you? But, um, <laughs> but we're really glad that you're here. And, and I'll just give a quick plug. Of course, it's going to be in your uh, intro for, for those that started off at the outset. But your amazing podcast, um, Psychologist Off the Clock, which um, I'll just give a quick plug. Listeners, if you want to listen to any podcast uh, out there on mental health, it's probably that one. Happy Hour is obviously number two, but Psychologist <laughs> Off the Clock. 
for years uh, in radio parlance, I was a longtime listener, first time caller. I got a chance to actually be interviewed on it uh, not that long ago. And it was a great thrill, but it's a phenomenal uh, set of guests and hosts and, and really amazing psychologists doing great work. So definitely check that out uh, if you are interested. So we're going to dive into all kinds of things uh, with you today, cover a lot of ground in our brief time. Obviously, we'll talk about that incredible book of yours, Work, Parent, Thrive. We'll talk about relationships more broadly. But I, we always like to start off, uh, Supriya indulges me. Uh, I'm allowed one random question, um, just has nothing Uh-oh. to do with the topic. <laughs> don't worry too much. You know, It, it changes every time. Um, and I bet the questions, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't ask me about sports, Jonah. <laughs> no, I, I know better than to do that. Um, although I, I will have to say you're in the New England area. I was happy I to see the Celtics go down the other night. No offense. Oh, cruel. Um, but, uh, <laughs> But besides that, you know, I've been on a bit of a of a movie kick of late, as Supriya knows. Uh, I've even subjected you to multiple references of uh, having seen the movie Heat again recently, and how that was I one don't of think, the. I didn't bet this question. How <laughs> was one Where of the great, great movies? And what I'd love to know is: has is there a movie or a book that comes to mind for you? It could be either that you feel like has change your life in a lasting way? As an author, someone who's written a great book, is there something that you've read or watched, if you're more of a movie person or both, that you know you remember to this day in terms of really touching you in that way and changing you? Oh, gosh, so many. I mean, my, my mind automatically goes to books because I am a total bibliophile, but there's so many books. But So it depends on like what span of time in my life you're talking about, but books really stick with me. But I'll say my all-time favorite life-altering book is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is not a terribly original choice. And Joan, I can see that like that one. <laughs> That's my number one. My number yeah, one. it's like whoever has not read it, if you are looking for just a transformative, powerful read, it is... like words cannot describe. It's, you know, the story of a psychiatrist who was interned in a concentration camp. He had already been developing a therapy that he called logotherapy that was all about the importance of searching for meaning. And then here he is in a concentration camp questioning, like, is this a helpful thing, even in these brutal, disempowered, you know, horrific conditions? And the way that he talks about it is like nothing short of transformative and and you leave sort of the reading of the book feeling like empowered to search for your own meaning and help other people do the same. So highly recommend. We did not plan that out, uh, (laughs) but that would be my my number one choice. And and probably, Superior, I'm thinking of a very good segue for a lot of what we're going to cover today, this question of meaning that's covered, of course, in Man's Search for Meaning. And, you know, topics like relationships, parenting, and so forth um, ties right into that that question of meaning. Yeah. I mean, and I was just going to say, if you're getting any kickbacks for endorsing that book, I'm sure you just made some sales for Man's Search for Meaning. Um, I feel like I need to reread it. It's been a while. But... It's one that I reread about every year. Sure. It's it's just ah. one of, yeah. And you always get something new out of it or an important reminder. But yeah, it's not very long. No, Although no. it's, I feel like there's like the first half that is more the story part. And then there's the second half that's more the technicalities of the therapy and and for most people, the first half is more digestible. And, for sure. But they're both powerful. And the little awesome. known fact, he wrote the whole thing in nine 
days in a hotel. Oh, I didn't know that. Which, uh, yeah, I'm guessing you did not. I did not write my books in, in yours in nine days. Uh, mine took about nine years. Yes. Just to put it out there. <laughs> well, so. and let's, I want to talk about your book. So let's shift gears a bit. I, I just recently finished and I'm so excited about Work Parent Thrive. And I, I think, you know, without getting into too much detail as a working parent and someone that is constantly trying to figure out how to juggle and balance all of this. Your book just brought so much perspective in terms of in terms of who I am and, and how I can function better in these roles. So I'll pause there. Can you just tell us, maybe we can start off with you telling us a little bit about what led you to write this book? Yes. Well, I mean, the birth story of the book is the birth story of my child <laughs> when I became a working parent. And I, I mean, I'm not alone in this, but I I actually really was pretty confident that I would do a pretty good job as a working parent. I I love my job. I love being a clinical psychologist. At the time that I became a parent, I was really full in academic the academic world. And I really love doing research. I love my colleagues. It was a very supportive environment. I had a healthy pregnancy. I really love little kids. I was so excited to be a parent. I have a supportive partner. So like, you know, I had all the pieces and I'd worked really hard to get to the place that I was professionally where I felt like, you know, I have the, the, the trust from my colleagues to kind of take a small step back while I rear my child in the early months and then I can kind of get right back into it. So all the pieces seemed to be there. And so it was a real shock to my system that I found myself crying every day on the commute to work and feeling just all torn up inside while I was sitting at my desk writing grants and analyzing data. And then at night when I would be home with my baby, I would feel just ashamed of myself for not working and knowing that all of my colleagues were being productive in the evenings because that's what researchers do. They're just always doing something and producing. Um, And so I started to do what nerdy people do and what psychologists do, which is like I started to read everything that I could get my hands on because I was like, I can't. This isn't the way that I want it to go. I I want something better and I don't want to feel miserable when I finally gotten all the things that I thought I was supposed to have and, and supposed to be able to enjoy. But what I found in the bookstore in the library was pretty disheartening because most of it was about how the world around us is really fractured and inhumane. And there's truth to that, but it was it didn't feel like anything that I could do anything about. And then the other sort of genre of books was like manage your time better or make sure that your marriage is more equal. And I didn't feel like that was really my issue. And so I started to think, you know, maybe there's something more. So I started to really dive into the academic literature. And what I found there actually fit me a bit better. It was this whole body of research on a concept called work-family enrichment. And it sits alongside the research on work-family conflict. But most people outside of academia and outside of this pocket of research are only familiar with work-family conflict, which is, of course, the idea that our roles necessarily conflict with each other. They're competing for our finite time, our finite energy, our finite attention. And that is true. I don't think anyone argues that that is a reality. But there's also this reality that our roles can enhance each other and enrich each other, that both are true, but that because we're so often thinking about the conflict, that we're not accessing the ways that our roles can help each other out. And work-family enrichment, sort of the simplest definition, is that our roles can help each other out. And there's really interesting ways that they can do that. And so as I 
sort of started diving into this literature on work-family enrichment, I started thinking about all the various ways that our roles can help each other out from helping us get more creative, helping us get more perspective, helping us learn to manage stressful experiences more effectively, even helping our romantic relationships. And so I started um, to think about, you know, maybe this could be a contribution for parents like me that are not finding what they're looking for as they're trying to figure out working parenthood that people, you know, may want to do this in more happy ways. And Joan, I know that you are really enamored with positive psychology, and I am too. So I I think that this is sort of happiness science for working parents. But it also is helpful, I think, for people who are just juggling multiple demanding roles more generally. It's this idea that we can manage the conflict more skillfully and extract more of the happiness more strategically when we understand the way that our roles can more helpfully exist in tension with one another. I think that, you know, what what you describe is so helpful. And, and a lot of what you write about in your book and a lot of your work is based on values and, and clarifying values and using that to help to guide that enrichment. Could you speak a little bit about just, you know, what values are and, and how someone that isn't really sure how to connect with those might clarify their own values? Yeah, sure. So, Values are a one of the core processes in a treatment that I practice called acceptance and commitment therapy. And they're they're defined in a variety of ways, but I think the simplest definition is it's sort of how you want to show up moment to moment. And the key word there is how, because values describe a quality of action. So the common metaphor that we use is if you're going up a mountain, the destination is getting to the top of the mountain. That's the goal. So goals are different than values because values have more to do with the how you take the journey. So you might be heading up the mountain, and it's good to have a goal. It's good to have a direction to go in. But we don't always have perfect control over it. For example, a storm might come up, or you might twist your ankle, or you might be with a little kid who decides that they no longer want to travel up the mountain. And so we got to hold the outcome, the goal, lightly. But what we can focus more on, what we have a lot more control over, is how we take the journey moment to moment. So for example, you can decide that your how is mindfully. You can really slowly and, you know, with your senses very tuned in, take the journey up the mountain. Or you can try to get a workout and really push yourself to kind of get your heart rate up. And if the weather comes up, we can switch what values in the driver's seat and we can decide that our how is, you know, making sure that safety is a priority or connecting with our child and and their needs. So values, moment to moment, are something that we can clarify for ourselves and they're context dependent and they can change flexibly depending on what's important to you. And the reason that I talk a tremendous amount about values in the book is not simply because it's an important part of acceptance and commitment therapy, but because values are a helpful compass when we're struggling and when we have a lot of demands on us because rather than seek out what's easy or what seems to make sense or what other people say, you know, that's the right choice, sometimes there's no obvious right choice and there is no easy. But when we clarify for ourselves what's most important to us, given how hard it is, given that we can't make things easy, then it helps us tolerate what's challenging in in a way that sort of helps us, the word is transcend. We can sort of like get above the challenges. It doesn't mean that we don't experience them, but we sort of have this nice clarity in the compass of how we're going to endure what's hard, and it actually helps us endure what's hard more effectively. Love that. 
you know, and, and in this life that, you know, is so short and finite and goes by in a blink, you know, values and how we live seems to become that much more of an important question. I sometimes think to myself, you know, if, if we lived in the future where we all were a thousand years old, it probably wouldn't matter as much, right? We could, you know, do something else in our 300s versus 500s. But, you know, maybe it's something about kind of hitting another decade not all that long ago in, in my life where the question of how do you want to live really starts to take um, much more of a, of a focus. Um, I was wondering, you know, you know, when you mentioned sort of going back to the, the, the question of uh, role enrichment, um, you gave some really beautiful kind of general examples of how that could show up. Would you mind maybe sharing something from your own life of how that played out? Sure. Um, I can think of lots of ways, but my kids are always enriching me professionally. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I specialize in relationships and they're some of the most important relationships that I have, the ones that I care about and the ones where I mess up all the time and worry and, you know, worry about the impact that I'm having. But they teach me that, you know, it's okay to learn and grow. And they teach me to sort of honor you know, space between people and to perspective take and to be uh, patient and to be uh, curious. And, and, and so I think all of those skills really transfer well into my professional role as a psychologist. But what was so fun in writing this book and in getting to interview working parents from all walks of life, different professional backgrounds, different family circumstances, was just because I think my role as a psychologist, the transfer between psychology and parenting is a bit more obvious. Mm -hmm. But I interviewed like an exotic dancer and a cruise ship attendant and lawyers and engineers and people who worked in restaurants and people who worked at customer complaints at utility companies. And in each case, people were able to talk about various ways that their roles helped each other out. And I wonder, maybe I can just quickly walk through this, the three distinct paths that that can happen yeah, in. Please, and that I think that great. can be clarifying. Yeah. So the first is the transfer effect. And that's the idea that when you step out of one role and into another, you're often developing new skills, um, new perspectives, and or you're getting a break from a role. And so by stepping, by having the pressure to step away from one role and into another, you're often accruing uh, either skills or, or um, a break that can helpfully feed back into the role that you stepped away from. So that's the transfer effect. The second is the buffer effect. And that's the idea that in life, <laughs> we are going to have stressful experiences. And sometimes you're having a really rough day at work or you're having a really rough developmental phase with your kid or your marriage is going through a rough patch or you're struggling with your aging parent. And it's really nice to have multiple roles that give you an opportunity to step out of the role that's giving you a rough time and into a role where you can have more positive experiences. So you can buffer the stress by stepping out of one role that you're having a hard time in and into a role that can offer you some positivity. And the third path is the additive effect. And this gets back to what we were talking about with Man's Search for Meaning. Because as we know from Man, Man's Search for Meaning really does a beautiful articulation of this. But since that time, the book was written in the 1940s, we've had troves of research that have accumulated to really demonstrate that one of the things that we know contributes to a sustainably happy life is a life that is rich in meaning. And when you occupy different roles, particularly demanding roles, it's an opportunity to have more meaning. And, and I always think about it as like you can spread your existential eggs around. So like for a lot of parents, when our kids go off and leave the house, there's kind of an emptiness. And that makes sense. But you can sort of counteract that emptiness by having meaning in other pockets of your life so that not everything 
is all in one place. So if, you know, for example, I interviewed a computer scientist and I remember she said just a really profound thing that when she had her kid, it made the stakes lower for all of her roles. She didn't have to say, well, if I don't make it to some level in my professional life, then I'm going to feel like a failure because now she has these other areas where she can feel a sense of purpose that not everything is reliant on one specific pocket of her life. And so, again, those are the the three. So it's the transfer effect, the buffer effect, and the additive effect. I can see that playing out. So in many places, you know, I can even think on a personal level, so many people that either put all the all the eggs in that one basket, whether it's in their professional identity or even as a parent, right? And then the kid doesn't do so well and they feel like a failure versus kind of having this more diffusion around that. Also with retirement, I was just, you know, talking to someone who was yeah. just retiring and feeling like because there wasn't a lot of these other embers in the fire, so to speak, um, this this real profound emptiness that came. So I could see this playing out in, in just so many different parts of life. Thanks for sharing that. Well, and I think even too, just when I was reading your book and, and considering this, it, it's a perspective shift. And I'm sure not just for me in terms of that, that I have so much going on and so many things that I have to switch back and forth. And it feels like burnout is going to happen versus thinking about it in this way in terms of how am I connecting with these things? How are these things adding to my life? How am I finding value in them? And I, even that, you know, I get to spend time with my kids now and take a, take a break from work and switch back from work or whatever it might be. It's just such a, such a renewing way to consider how we're living our lives and managing these roles. Yeah, totally. Well, and I have to say at the end of the day, what I am hoping people take away from this book is is the ability to kind of shift the mindset from a conflict mindset to an enrichment mindset. But another way to say it, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head, is from like a fixed mindset to an expandable mindset. And I think exactly in the way that you're describing it, Supriya, like when we see that our life is really full and we say, oh my God, it's so overwhelming. That is true. But Shifting the narrative just slightly to saying, oh, my life is really full and rich changes the experience of it without changing what's on the ground at all. And by changing our editing, our narrative, right, this is something we do in therapy. It really changes how we engage moment to moment in a full, rich life. And there's just such interesting research about this, you know, like stress mindsets. When we see stress as debilitating versus stress as enhancing, it changes the way we experience a stressful like, uh, you know, performing public speaking. And again, that mindset shift not only changes how we experience it, but also our effectiveness moment to moment in doing a public speech or what have you. And I, I sort of blinked when you guys asked me for a personal experience, but I'll, I will share similarly to what Supriya said, that one experience that I regularly have is interruptions. So this is something that I talk about in the book a bit, that we think about interruptions to our work or our time with our family as like a bad thing, like, oh, I was having a good time and it, I got interrupted. But what the research shows is that actually interruptions help sustain our enjoyment of whatever it is. And when we get interrupted from a cognitively taxing task, it actually gives us an opportunity to be creative when we step away. So now I see interruptions by my kids when I'm working as like, okay, this is good. I needed a break. I didn't necessarily want one because I felt like I was kind of on a roll, but I can use this. I can use this interruption to my benefit by stepping fully into parenting role and knowing that I'll come back fully recharged and maybe with some more creative ideas 
when I do have a chance to return. Now, it doesn't always work perfectly seamlessly, but it is an opportunity to use that mindset shift in a, in a helpful way. Um, and, and on that note, you also talk about something that I think a lot of us experience with role conflict and, and managing multiple demands with guilt in terms of, I should be doing this or I should be attending to that. How do you recommend navigating that and using guilt when it comes up? Yeah, guilt is a big one for parents. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it's an emotion that everyone has. We are all wired with it and for very good reason. And what emotion researchers talk about is that guilt is a, is a really interpersonal emotion. It is its function is to protect our relationships from harm that's been done or from anticipated harm. So it kind of calls your attention to, oh, I dropped the ball at work and my colleagues might be really irritated with me. Or I didn't go to my kid's school play and I really need to let them know that I love them and I see them and I care about them. And so in that way, guilt is quite helpful. We don't want to ignore it. The problem is that guilt is one of those evolutionarily mismatched emotions most of them are, to be honest, that it kind of can go off in ways that are not terribly helpful. So whereas in pre-modern times, if you dropped the ball and you were ousted from the tribe, you were like done for. A predator was likely going to eat you. Same thing goes if you didn't really attend to your kids quite carefully, they were going to be in serious danger. But now, like if I give my kid the orange mac and cheese when they really wanted the white and I'm feeling terribly guilty, like that's not terribly helpful because they're fine. I'm fine. And our relationship is fine. So guilt sometimes in modern life gets triggered in ways that are not helpful and I would argue counterproductive, especially when it comes to our kids. So for example, if your kid forgot their homework and you feel guilty that your kid is upset and distressed and feeling embarrassed and so you swoop in and you bring their homework to them, what you've now done is you've interfered with a really important learning opportunity for them, that they are now not going to experience the embarrassment and be forced to learn from it, which is actually good for them, and Mm. also allow them to experience that discomfort and know that they'll be all right, right? Like that discomfort generally doesn't kill us. It's an opportunity to learn to, you know, feel your feelings, learn from them, and figure out what to do next. And so in that way, guilt when it comes to parents can often be really counterproductive. And so what I always tell people is you don't want to ignore it. It's kind of like pain in your leg. Like sometimes you have a pain in your leg and you need to go to the doctor. You need to get it checked out. And sometimes you have a pain in your leg and it means that you need to like do more rest or do more stretching. And sometimes you just have a pain in your leg because you're like feeling twitchy. Unless you pay attention to the pain, you can't really tell which one it is. So you got to let it in. You got to notice it and be curious about it. And then it's helpful to ask, like, how helpful is this, you know, given what I know about myself as a parent and my child or what I know about my work environment? Is this a cue to me to, like, you know, step back in and apologize or pay more attention to whatever the ball that got dropped was? Or is this one of those things that it's just the smoke alarm going off, but there's nothing really wrong and I need to reset the smoke alarm and sort of move along? And so, you know, it is really that, like, get cur- notice, get curious, ask about the the value of the information and then make a behavioral choice that's value aligned. Or is it just because you're 40? And that's why you're yeah. <laughs> but, um, that's the pain in my back. <laughs> I woke up with that this morning. <laughs> uh, that pain a, is real. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I, I loved your point about sort of this, this evolutionary, this mismatch, right? Because I think so much of our suffering in 2023 mm. is due to the very things that helped us to survive 
10, 15, 50,000 years ago as homo sapiens and now just have that mismatch. And, and, Mm -hmm. And I think that's true of how we live. That's true of how we connect. And, you know, I think that actually kind of brings me to thinking of another theme that you talk so much about, which is this idea of human connection and relationships. Um, and obviously your amazing new newsletter that I want to give you a chance to uh, to give a plug for as well. But, you know, we now know, I'd say more than ever, about the importance of belonging, connection, relationships. You know, longest running study in the social sciences has, has found that. Um, I'm always struck by that great quote by George Valent, who did that study. He said, 80 years of research says the only thing that matters in life are relationships, relationships, relationships. And you, of course, have this wonderful newsletter on relationships. And I want to hear kind of how you got into this whole space, because this affects us, you know, again, whether it's romantic relationships, parent, child, peer, friend, you know, co Colleagues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this plays such a huge part of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> I... I wonder sometimes, sometimes I worry that it's because I'm really bad at relationships and I'm just like trying to figure out how to navigate them. I actually was a super socially awkward child. And I will reveal that like my mother struggled with depression and my father was raised on a kibbutz. So he was sort of unusual interpersonally for people who are not familiar with mm-hmm. kibbutzim. They're these socialist communes that are found in Israel. And they're not this way now, but when my child, when my father was a child, Days after he was born, he was moved into a children's house. So he lived in the same community as his parents, but he never lived together with them. And so he had sort of like an unusual way of being close interpersonally. And so I think I was always like, I want more interpersonal connection. Why, Why is this not, you know, available to me? And so I got really interested in relationships quite early. And then I went to graduate school to work with somebody who studies marriage. And, um, you know, it was just so interesting to me, like how relationships work and how they fall apart. But what's most interesting to me, I think, is that relationships can be improved. And I think that's what people often don't realize is that psychological science really shows very soundly that we can change our relationships. Like, for example, many people think that attachment research is proof that like if you had a caregiver relationship that was, um, insecure or disorganized or or otherwise unhealthy, that that's kind of, you're marked for life. Like you can't have healthy relationships. And that is, that is absolutely not the case. It does take work and effort and practice to grow healthier in our relational life, but it is absolutely available through, you know, tools that we offer in, in clinical psychology. And so for me, it, you know, doing work with couples, with parents, um, and, and with roles even is, to me, so powerful. It's like even more powerful than working with individuals because you really have an opportunity to just change the environment, Mm -hmm. right? The interpersonal environment, which is so important. And Jonah, as you're saying, like research shows it is like the most important thing for happiness, the most, like without question, it is the key for happiness. It doesn't mean that other things aren't also important, but if you had to pick one thing, Mm -hmm. relationships would be it. And health. I mean, amazingly, like longevity and, and immune system functioning and blue zone studies looking at this, it's really amazing how this one factor, like quality social connection, those top three, four, five relationships in your life have this outsized impact. And there was even a positive psychologist years back, I don't know if you, you two have heard of him, called uh, named Abraham Lincoln, who said that... Uh, <laughs> That uh, relationships are the foundation of happiness or misery, but it depends on the relationship. Um, and so it really can <laughs> either take us kind of all, all the way here, all the way there, just depending on, on how that goes. What are some of like the biggest misconceptions, would you say, that people have um, 
kind of in your work around like what makes for a good relationship? I know that some people come in, at least in my practice, where there's the idea like, oh, if we're in conflict, that's a horrible sign. Or if we have differences of of interest. So what what do you notice kind of when it comes to, to clearing some of that up for people? Yeah, gosh, there's so many misconceptions. But I think you're pointing to one that is really common, which is that differences are bad. Like if we have differences in temperament or preferences or or parenting style or or libido, that it's a bad thing. And so a lot of what I do in in the relationship work that I do in the in the clinical room is try to t- educate people that differences are actually quite good, right? That we can I always think about it with the visual of the yin-yang symbol, right? That mm-hmm. like what, what is actually healthy and complex systems is complementary entities. And we often feel like the differences are in conflict in sort of oppositional ways, but it's a mindset shift. If we now begin to see them as like ways of creating more harmony because of the differences, we actually can manage the differences in much more collaborative, healthy ways. So I'll give an, a common example, which is that people come into the to my office with co-parenting challenges. And it's often the case that one person is really the disciplinarian mm-hmm. and the other person is really the one who leads with warmth. And they really both see, you know, one another as like their adversaries. Like, you're telling me I'm wrong and I'm telling you that what you're doing makes no sense and you're going to screw our kids up. And what I always say is you're both right and you're both wrong, right? But that you're each bringing something really valuable to the table. But in the absence of the other, you'd fall too extreme on one side because what we know from parenting science is that the healthiest parenting style is one that encapsulates both discipline and warmth, love and limits. We need both for healthy parenting. And it's awesome that you guys each bring a piece of that. And if you can collaborate and lean into those differences and and be one another's cheerleaders for what it is that you each bring to the table, that's going to work much better for you and for your kids. And the same thing goes if you see differences in, you know, introversion or extroversion or somebody who wants to save versus somebody who wants to, you know, go out and spend and have fun, right? Those differences are actually quite helpful. So that's that's a common one. The other common branch that's uh, of misconceptions is that again, I'm sort of getting back to like this growth mindset idea is that people think where we are, if it's unhappy is like, uh, um, you know, we're done. Like this is it. Where we start is where we end and we're not a match and therefore we can't go anywhere. And that's true with sexual compatibility, with conflict style, with, you know, where you want to live or um, how you want to, again, raise your family. And I always encourage people to develop a, a relational growth mindset that where you start is not necessarily where you're going to end, depending on, you know, your interest, your willingness to collaborate, your interest in practicing new habits, that if you are willing to do some work, that you can get to a very different place than where you're at. So I think that's a really big misconception that people think it should be easy. It's like math, right? You think, oh, if I'm good at math, it'll be easy for me. And if I'm bad at math, you know, the fact that I flunked the test, that's just evidence. I'll never be able to learn it. And what we know from growth mindset research is like, if you actually shift your mindset, you can get somewhere very different in math. Same thing goes for relationships. I think that's so important because we do, you know, we might have our thoughts and our conceptions about what the right thing is, whether it's about parenting, whether it's about finances. And then we almost search 
for that other response, that fixed response that we are looking for to then react to. And so what you're describing is really taking kind of a step back and seeing how that different response can fit and how those two responses can come together to move forward versus just being that space where you're looking for it and coming to the same cycle, whatever that might look like. Exactly. A common uh, metaphor for couples work is is dancing. And like it only takes one person to shift how the choreography goes. But if you shift how you do things, it has to shift how the other person does it because you're no longer dancing the same old dance. So I think you're just pointing to like it. It isn't easy to change habits, but what's nice in couples therapy is it just takes someone to say, I'm not doing that anymore. Let's do something different. And you really can move in a new direction. You know, better if you sort of let your partner know I'm going to be changing the dance steps so that you don't step on each other's toes. But but it's a good metaphor for that reason. I could, could I apply the growth mindset to my inability to dance, perhaps? Um, you could. I say to you myself, I, I can dance. Yeah, giving a heads up yes. on the next move could be really helpful. (laughs) Yes. Actually, there's a book to that level uh, on that topic that I really love called Peak by uh, Andre Bjornsson, I think his name is. But he he gets his work gets talked about in Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Mm -hmm. book, um, Outliers. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of 10,000 hours. But he talks about deliberate practice and that almost anything, even if you totally stink at it, including dancing, you can get better at. You can get a lot better at. It's just a question of if you want to invest the time and energy. Ten thousand. I'm hours. also a bad dancer, but I don't care. Five years, five <laughs> I, I like dancing now. badly. <laughs> That's well, that growth mindset. <laughs> perhaps if, if this really was the happy hour and we were imbibing, then perhaps it wouldn't, oh. wouldn't care if we were if we were bad. <laughs> then at dancing, I would think so. I was a good dancer. <laughs> there you go. Like, like me at every wedding that I've been to. Uh, and then I wake up the next day realizing I probably was not as good as I thought. Um, <laughs> Living in the moment. It's all good. I can relate to that. Well, we, we, we could go all day with you, but I know we can't. Uh... Yeah. And so maybe I know we could go all day. And I knew I was going to do this. We were going to do this because you're so amazing. But um, we are going to, to shift gears here. And so we have what we call a lightning round that we like to end with. And it's the okay. same for Now questions. I'm nervous again. Now I really do need a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to revisit that, Jonah. Um, I told you it wasn't a bad idea. I think you should do a cocktail for the lightning round. I yeah. think it'll put guests more at I ease. I agree. I'm in. <laughs> okay. Definitely. We're going to revisit that. So, so yeah, I'll, um, what is one change you'd encourage listeners to ba- to make based on, on your work and what we've talked about today? Well, we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but it's my favorite tip from my book, which is subtract. So this, you know, think about what you do in a day or in a week and figure out what parts of your day that you spend and energy that you spend is value aligned and what parts are not value aligned. And then seriously consider subtracting the stuff that is not value aligned. In in the wellness world, we're always thinking about doing more like do more meditation, do more exercise, eat more healthy, spend more time with your partner, do you know, spend more time with your kids, um, sleep more. And very rarely do we think about less. So no wonder we all feel so overwhelmed. So my tip to everybody is figure out what you can do less of or just simply take off your to-do list entirely. It is so freeing. And then once you take something off the list, keep that space free because that is good for you too. You spoke to my heart. I'm I'm trying to live that myself. So thank you for that. (laughs) I'm already thinking about what I can subtract. I love subtracting. (laughs) It's hard to do, but oh, it feels so good. 
What is one thing that you are working on these days professionally? I know you have so many hats uh, that Mm -hmm. you're wearing. What is one thing that you're working on that you're particularly pumped about? Well, I'm really trying to grow myself as a writer more generally. So I have this new newsletter that you very kindly mentioned called Relational, the Art and Science of Connection. And I'm really excited about becoming a newsletter writer. And it's sort of in keeping with my goal to grow as a writer. And then I'm also actively working on a proposal for a next book that's also sort of in the relationship space. This is me applauding for those that are listening. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. So how about on a personal level? What are you looking forward to? This summer, I am looking forward to spending a lot of time with my little boys. We Summer is always really complicated for working parents. I don't know if all the listeners out there are nodding their heads, but oh, come January or February when you're trying to figure out camps and you're like, I don't even know what we're doing this summer. And then, you know, the enrollment opens up and it, at 7 o'clock and at 7.01, everything's already full. So here's here's like a mindset shift. I didn't make it. I didn't was not successful in signing my kids up for enough camps. And so we have a lot of weeks without camps. And it stressed me out to no end. And now I'm like trying to do the mindset shift of this is going to be great. I will have time to spend with them. They are only little for so long. And I will wake up really, really early to do work and, you know, collaborate with my partner to be able to see patients, which I can't do it, you know, 4 a.m. <laughs> but, um, but I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to spending time with them. So the 80s, 90s summer plan of just like, go out at light, we'll see you at dinner, um, <laughs> so, isn't so as in vogue these days. It's as not as in vogue, but I will admit I'm totally a free-range parent, and, but I always worry that people will judge me. My kids do a lot of wandering no, this, around the neighborhood. No and my, yeah, we love, we love John yeah. Height. We love all that stuff. So we are, You guys should have Lenore Skenazy on. We, she's she's awesome. on the list. We would love to. Oh, good. I can connect you if you want. Oh, please do. <laughs> Please do. We would love that. Uh, And, you know, being that this is the happy hour, you know, obviously we don't have the cocktails today, but we're working on that. Uh, But we are curious, what is one thing that you try to do every day or at least more days than not when it comes to cultivating your own happiness and well-being in your life? Hmm. Something that I do every single day? Most Hmm. More days than not. Sometimes. (laughs) Once in a while. Once a week. (laughs) Once a year. Um, Okay. What do I... So I'm an avid runner in that I run very slowly four times a week, (laughs) but I'm very dedicated to it. It's like instead of taking meds, I run, which is very good for my mental health. Um, Every day I try to hug my kids. Every day I try to have screen-free time, um, usually when my kids are home. Every day I try to sleep seven hours. <laughs> Every and I will and I meditate five days a week for three minutes at a time. <laughs> That's awesome. That is, well, and I was going to ask when you when do you sleep, but I, I'll believe you when you say that you sleep seven hours with oh, all no. of the other things yes. you're doing. And this is only once a week, but I I am like out of the closet now. I nap <laughs> like napping is my thing. Once a week, but it's Saturday and I look forward to it all week and my kids dread it. They're like, oh, it's mom's nap time. <laughs> We're so bored. <laughs> well, you do have to have everyone on board if you're taking a nap. Yeah. Oh, they have. I mean, the thing is, there are consequences when mom doesn't get her nap and nobody wants that. I get very They've grumpy. learned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, this was so great. Thank Absolutely. you so much for being here with us today. We could just keep going, but I know that oh, you, you guys are awesome. 
I thought I'm we had so one more hour, right? I'm so excited for more of your going. episodes. I, I would love to have one more hour. So we will definitely Anytime. have Anytime. I would love that. <laughs> unless, it's, um, unless it's Saturday on your nap time. Yeah, not during nap time. Oh, okay. yeah. And I, I don't do work on Saturdays. It's actually, I'm not a religious Good person, but mm-hmm. I am like pretty, as a result of lots of burnout, I, I am very dedicated about not working on Saturdays. I share that. I, and I had to learn the hard way, like with so many things, but it's a good uh, good, good thing to do. <laughs> well, and I, I just appreciate your candor and just how transparent you are about where where your work has come from and how this has impacted you. And I think even in your book, you talk a lot about how this came to be and, and your own family history. And so the book I highly recommend if you have not checked it out, um, it is something that is so helpful. Work, Parent, Thrive is the title. Um, And we will finally let you go. But last question, can you tell our listeners where to find you if they want to learn more about you? Sure. So I have a website, workparentthrive.com, that you can find out more about me. You can find the sign up for my newsletter there as well. Um, and you can also find me on social media. I'm trying actually to be more active on social media, which <laughs> seems, I don't know, I, it seems I, wrong, but uh, it's actually kind of fun. I've even seen you on the Twitter of all places. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to be a little bit on the Twitter. I'm a lot on the Instagram. I li- I'm a little on the LinkedIn. Those are the three. Yeah. Awesome. No, no TikTok for, for Dr. Sean somebody, yet. But. Somebody told me that I should go on TikTok, and I was like, I'm in my 40s. I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. I don't, I don't yeah. think that it, even if I tried really hard, it would yeah. land for anyone. <laughs> I know. Although I will say, so this is a random offshoot, but Lindsay Gibson, who's wonderful and wrote mm. Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, who you should also have on. I, connect mm. you to, I can connect you to her. She's Good wonderful. Best. Awesome. Thank you. She said that her book reached like thousands and thousands of people exactly because of TikTok. And she's like in her 60s. So who knows? (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe we need to rethink that. Um, (laughs) Lots to think about. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was such a pleasure. You are doing amazing stuff. Thank you so much. much. Thank you guys so much. It was such a treat talking with you. (laughs) Take care. Take care.